This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today, we are considering one of the most critical positions at the Department of State. So, Ambassador Verma, welcome. Thank you. Uh, you've served with great distinction. We appreciate your willingness to return to public service. I understand that Senator Cardin wants the privilege of introducing you to the committee, and so we'll recognize him for that purpose. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to introduce Ambassador Verma uh, to our committee. I welcome you and thank you for your willingness to continue in public service. You have a very distinguished career in serving. And I also want to thank your family because we recognize you can't do this without an understanding family. It's really a family commitment. So thank you for your willingness to serve our country. Ambassador Verma spent 30 years working in law, foreign policy, and national security. He's a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. He worked here in the Senate for many years as Senator Harry Reid's National Security Advisor. He's a former Assistant Secretary of State, a distinguished U.S. Ambassador to India, and now he's General Counsel of one of America's most well-known and reputable companies, MasterCard. I can't think of a more qualified nominee to take over the Deputy Secretary position for management and resources. And by the way, Mr. Chairman, he's also a Marylander. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ambassador Verma's uh, father, Professor Verma, who joins us today, provides us a classic American immigrant success story. He arrived in the United States in 1963 with $14 and a bus ticket and nothing else. No family, no support system, yet he went on to become a professor at the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown, where he taught for 43 years as a scholar in English and South Asian literature. Another connection, I'm also a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh, so good choices. Both of uh, Ambassador uh, Verma's parents became educators. His mom worked many years as a special needs teacher. They would raise five children, Rich being the youngest. Ambassador Verma launched his career with the help of the U.S. Air Force, securing a full Air Force ROTC scholarship at, to Lehigh University. At this early age, he knew he wanted to serve his country, and that has not changed. We are so grateful for his service back then and here again today. Ambassador Verma's spouse, Pinky's family, also overcame so much to be here today. Her grandparents, surviving the great atrocities in the last century, committed against the Armenian people. They settled in New York in the early 1920s. Like Ambassador Verma, Pinky's father was also a veteran, and he also worked right here as chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, another impressive family member of service. So both Ambassador Verma and his wife have raised three wonderful children. The State Department is a great institution, but it has a lot of needs. It needs bold, forward-thinking leaders who have a wide range of experiences to help us modernize and have even a greater impact globally. This committee moved forward, and the Congress did as well, with several pieces of legislation that Senator Haggerty and I sponsored in the previous con Congress that came out of our subcommittee on the State Department. I look forward to working with Ambassador Verma in his new position to implement those provisions in law. Ambassador Verma is the kind of leader the Department and the country needs at this time. In addition to all the things I've already mentioned, he serves on several important boards, including the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, the Ford Foundation, Lehigh University, the National Endowment for Democracy, and a Maryland company, T. Rowe Price. Ambassador Verma is the right person at the right time to take on this position. I'm proud to introduce him to our committee. Thank you, Senator Cardin, for that glowing introduction.
He normally gives Marylanders a, a pretty significant introduction, but this is beyond the pay, I just want you to know. So, uh, The Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources is key to a functioning department and effective U.S. diplomacy worldwide. And there are no shortage of challenges. In recent years, state personnel have encountered a series of mounting and complex challenges, from rebuilding morale after years of decimation uh, over the last four years, to navigating COVID at home and abroad, to responding to urgent crises around the world. And yet, day in and day out, our diplomatic corps works tirelessly, often around the clock, to protect Americans overseas, to advance U.S. interests, and meet the challenges of the 21st century. We owe them the support, the resources, and the leadership they need to succeed. Because when our diplomacy succeeds, the United States succeeds. That's why for the last two years, this committee has worked diligently to reestablish the once common practice of enacting State Department authorization bills. I'm proud that this has been a robust, bipartisan effort, and I appreciate the partnership and contributions of the ranking member. It speaks volumes about the value that this committee places on the department, its personnel, and the importance of U.S. diplomacy. I hope that message is heard loud and clear. I look forward to working with Senator Risch and members of this committee to keep up that progress by passing state authorizations again this year and regularly going forward. Ambassador Verma of Confern, I look forward for you to partner with us in that effort because we need to make good on the promise of modernizing our premier American foreign policy institution. That means recruiting from across America, from the cities and coasts of New Jersey to the foothills in Idaho. It means cultivating and retaining a diverse and expert workforce to harness our nation's technological advances and keep pace with other countries. It means making a career where you move your family from country to country, work for spouses, partners, and children. It means making sure our overseas footprint reflects the reality of the global challenges facing us today and in the years to come, not 50 years ago. And it means focusing on how we promote and retain personnel so we don't lose talented individuals after years of investment. Ambassador Verma, as a former Ambassador Assistant Secretary of State, Senate staffer, you certainly have the experience to be successful in this position. I know that you're up to the task. We need you to be. More than a year ago, Secretary Blinken laid out his vision for what needs to happen to make sure that the State Department is equipped and agile enough to address the global challenges facing us. And while there has been progress, I have yet to see the bold action that is needed, the hard decisions, the reorienting of resources to make sure that we are competing with China, the efforts needed to push back on malign actors in backyards around the world the strategic focus on diplomacy to strengthen relationships where we need them most for the next 10, 20, and 50 years. So I look forward to hearing your plans for how we meet this moment, how to make good on the promise of truly modernizing the department and support our personnel from D.C. to South Carolina to Abuja to Beijing. Given the challenges we are facing from climate change to China to the war in Ukraine to food insecurity and global migration, we need to get this right. The future of our foreign policy and national security depends on it. With that, let me turn to my friend, the ranking member, for his remarks, Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador Vermeer, we see a lot of people here with impressive resumes, but uh, this one, as the chairman has said, is, uh, is stunning, really, uh, how they pulled you out of 
the private sector to do this is beyond me, but uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, the, the chairman and I share a uh, abiding conviction uh, uh, in our oversight role to see that the uh, uh, State Department does what it is supposed to do and does it uh, in a way that moves us as a country forward and uh, we don't uh, step on our uh, on our toes as we're trying to move forward and and in this this position is absolutely critical as the chairman uh, indicated in that regard and as uh, deputy secretary of state for management resources you have an important task ensuring the department is organized and resourced to address the multitude of foreign policy issues facing the United States. Strategic competition remains the overriding, overriding challenge as demonstrated by China flying spy balloons over the middle of America and Russia uh, continuing to pursue its unlawful war of aggression in Ukraine. In order to properly respond, the American people need a State Department firing on all cylinders and effectively and efficiently using its budget. For years, the department's cautious security approach made it difficult for American diplomats to get outside uh, embassies and consulates to meet with locals. Uh, uh, thankfully, uh, my Secure Embassy Construction and Counterterrorism Act and the Diplomatic Support and Security Act were signed into law last year. If confirmed, you will be responsible for implementing these efforts to move the department away from past policies of absolute total risk avoidance and uh, instead get our diplomats back to advancing American interests abroad. I expect the department to use these authorities uh, in this law, and I know you will help uh, pursue that. This is particularly important in Ukraine, where we need to rapidly increase staffing at the embassy and allow our diplomats to get outside the capital city to conduct oversight on the billions of dollars in assistance uh, rightfully flowing to Ukraine. <clears throat> More personnel are also needed to conduct oversight over the economic, military, and humanitarian assistance that are critical to helping the Ukraine people defend themselves and retake territory uh, from the Putin regime. The White House also needs to stop micromanaging Ambassador Brink's authority as chief mission to get the job done. In June, I visited uh, the embassy uh, in uh, Kyiv and uh, I was really impressed with the facility there. Unfortunately, there were only half a dozen people uh, uh, that were there for obvious reasons. The war was, uh, was heated up at that time. Ambassador, Ambassador Brink had uh, just been appointed at that time. Uh, she was here when, when I was over there. We met before I left, and uh, I, I was impressed with the uh, things she wanted to do there, and uh, I know you'll continue that forward. Along these lines, reopening an embassy in the Solomon Islands is an important step in elevating historic ties and building stronger partnerships with Pacific allies. China's corrupting political influence and its increased presence in critical maritime areas and its construction uh, of uh, certain undersea cables pose severe challenges to us and our partners. I strongly support a rapid and fully resourced approach to standing up new diplomatic posts in the Pacific Islands, the Maldives, and other critical locations. Opening these di diplomatic uh, facilities is vital. We are moving too slow and not thinking creatively to get that done. If confirmed, you will be charged with coordinating the implementation of this legislation. The department must be organized and resourced to lead health diplomacy, including the ex uh, execution of a coherent pandemic security strategy overseas. On the personnel front, I continue to be deeply concerned by the appalling treatment endured by U.S. diplomats in China in the name of complying with uh, Chinese COVID protocols. No, you do, no U.S. diplomats should have, uh, have ever been detained in fever camps, separated from their children, subjected to invasive medical testing and monitoring procedures, or silence when they tried to raise concerns. 
but, but what's worse is that the department legally permitted this treatment by partially waiving diplomatic immunity, not once but twice, most recently in April of, 19, er, of 2022. We are determined to ensure accountability for U.S. personnel responsible for enabling this unacceptable treatment. I want to work together to accomplish this. One thing the administration could do immediately would be to commit to not nominate or renominate anyone significantly involved in developing or enabling those policies. This committee must also do our part to make sure we don't reward poor judgment, incompetence, and undue deference to foreign government demands with promotions and prestigious appointments. Thank you for your willingness to serve with that. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, Ambassador Verma, we'll turn the floor to you. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. Please, uh, if you wish, uh, please uh, introduce your family members. We understand this is a family affair. Everybody <laughs> sacrifices along the way. So uh, we appreciate their willingness to uh, have you serve as well. Uh, and with that, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Risch, thank you very much to members of the committee. Senator Cardin, thank you for uh, really gracious introduction, and I'm honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. I want to express my appreciation to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their trust in nominating me for this position and the opportunity to serve our country again. This is my third time appearing before this committee, and this has been made possible through the support, patience, and understanding of my loving family who are with me today. My wife, Pinky, my children, Zoe, Lucy, and Dylan, my dad, my sisters, my sister-in-law, my brothers-in-law, and all of my family who are here today and who have always been by my side. You could run for office in Maryland. I apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I know I... I know I sit here today because of the sacrifice of those who came before me. As Senator Cardin mentioned, Pinky's grandparents escaped the carnage of the Armenian Genocide, and her father served this country in World War II. My parents fought for Indian independence, helped build a post-colonial India, and bravely set out for the United States 60 years ago, seeking a better life for their children and arriving here with virtually nothing. Their story is the story of the American dream, and my appearance before you today is a testament to the profound promise and power of that dream. I am here because of their hard work and courage, in addition to those of my teachers, coaches, neighbors, friends, mentors like Congressman Murtha, Senator Reid, Secretary Clinton, who stood by me. To all of them, I say thank you. Across a career spanning three decades, I've been privileged to serve here in this esteemed institution, as well as in the State Department, the military, and the private sector. And if confirmed, I'll seek to bring this constellation of experiences to this role. I have a strong appreciation for this committee's important work from my time as a Senate staffer and as Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. In fact, when I served in the leader's office working for Senator Reid, the staff director of this committee was one Tony Blinken. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely and collaboratively, again, to advance shared bipartisan priorities. I know the Secretary is fiercely committed to this as well. I was honored to have served as the U.S. Ambassador to India from 2014 to 2017, where we advanced critical priorities in the bilateral relationship. In India, I was able to work closely with extraordinary career professionals 
from across the State Department and every agency of the U.S. government to create a lasting impact. If confirmed in this role, I commit to serve the department's workforce here in Washington and around the world. Our people are our greatest asset. We must train and invest in their professional development and support and retain this talent over time, dismantling any structural barriers that keep too many people from joining or advancing in the department's ranks. I will support our entire workforce, from our locally employed staff, our contractors, our eligible family members, civil and foreign services, and to our interns. Secretary Blinken has also made clear that advancing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility is everyone's responsibility, and I look forward to championing this effort. I will be steadfast in the management and oversight of taxpayer dollars. I will advance a strategic vision that aligns our resources with our national security priorities, and that will be delivered operationally through our workforce through updated information technology and modern facilities, as well as through impactful foreign assistance programs at the department and USAID. And I will prioritize and advance Secretary Blinken's agenda to modernize American diplomacy. I'm encouraged by the efforts already underway to enhance the department's capacity and expertise to address critical missions, to modernize training and professional development, to institutionalize an agile and hybrid workforce to attract and retain talent, to modernize technology and the use of data, and to shift toward decisive leadership, innovation, and agility. Today's world suffers from no shortage of challenges, from the war in Ukraine to renewed great power competition to evolving transnational threats. One could easily become discouraged, but there is reason for hope. And I am truly optimistic about America's ability to lead on the global stage and to meet this critical moment in time. The America that welcomed my family here six decades ago did so on the promise of opportunity, of freedom and democracy, values we see threatened around the world today. The US State Department is more important than ever to advance these values, and if confirmed, it will be an honor to return to the department and support Secretary Blinken in his mission to equip and empower the, the department and its workforce to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you, Ambassador, for your statement. Uh, let me first start off with a series of questions that we ask of all of the nominees on behalf of the committee as a whole. Uh, they go to the responsiveness of nominees to the committee and to Congress. First, uh, I'd like to ask you, just simply provide a yes or no answer. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Do you commit to keeping the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. And do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. Okay. Not many having answered yes to all those questions on behalf of the committee, so we'll start a series of five-minute rounds. Um, what do you see, and understanding you're, you're not there now, but you have been there uh, and have also been able to see the, 
the department from the various vantage points of your career as the most pressing and difficult questions facing the department? And how would you go about trying to tackle them? Yes, yeah, Senator, thank you. I've thought a lot about this question and obviously having the experience of three years in India and seeing the department at work, uh, I'm just extraordinarily proud of the department. But as this committee has pointed out, the world is changing rapidly. The challenges that are emerging from technology to renewed great power competition to climate change to transnational threats. And I think at the core of it, we have to have a department that is ready to meet the challenges of today and not yesterday. And so that is what the Secretary's modernization agenda is about. That is what is working with all of you to make sure we have the budget and resources we have to meet that need, make sure we get our risk tolerance right so we are actually out engaging with people uh, around the world. But fundamentally, to answer your question, it is making sure we have the tools, the resources, and the training to meet the quintessential and current strategic challenges, the war in Ukraine, the competition with China, I could go on, uh, but that's how I, that's how I see the, this job and that's how I see the challenge. So uh, in that regard, uh, the, the Secretary has created what he calls China House. Um, we all, I think, on a bipartisan basis uh, agree that China is the biggest geostrategic challenge for the United States uh, now and in the future. Uh, how uh, do we equip and resource to compete with China? We, we just put out a report, the majority report, that shows our challenges in the Indo-Pacific as part of that, meeting that challenge. Um, how do you plan to approach reorienting State Department personnel and resources to better set U.S. diplomacy up for strategic competition with China? And as well, this is a multi-dimensional challenge to address inroads China has made, for example, in Africa and Latin America. Right. Senator, again, having spent three years in the region, you know, kind of watched the competition play out in front of me. And there is no more important challenge facing uh, the country. And the president and secretary have laid out, I think, a very uh, comprehensive strategy, invest here at home, align with our partners, and compete, and compete vigorously and responsibly uh, to prevail. So what does that mean from the department's perspective? That means, again, being present, um, opening embassies in the Pacific Islands, for example, is a great step. Uh, and this committee has, has been a leader in pushing the department in that regard. But it's not just in the Asia Pacific. It's also in Africa. It's in Latin America. It's showing up. It's having the resources again. It's also competing against uh, ideas that are challenging the post-war uh, rules-based order. And I think we have to be out there getting our message out, U.S. values uh, out. And uh, I do think the department is well positioned. Now, when I look at our tradecraft, it is still the best in the world. We just have a competitor that is now trying to compete with us, not just in Asia Pacific, but around the world. And I'm, I really believe if we invest in our people adequately, and as the committee has done, we will compete, uh, again, responsibly, and, and we will win this competition. It's essential for, the, for this uh, century's peace and stability. Well, towards that goal, as I mentioned earlier, for two years in a row, the committee has successfully passed a State Department authorization bill. Last year's bill advances recruitment, retention efforts, updates embassy security processes, codifies the new Cyber Bureau, among other provisions. Uh, will you commit to the committee to ensuring that the department is fully implementing these laws? Yes. 
Do you commit to ensuring that the Department will be ready to fully implement the amendments to the CASE Act as soon as they take effect in September of this year? Yes. Uh, as you know, I have been a longstanding champion of diversity, equity, and inclusion in international affairs, calling for a government-wide DEI strategic plan in legislation in 2020, holding the committee's first ever DEI hearing last year, ensuring our state authorization bills advance the department's efforts. Uh, if you could just give me a yes or no to these questions, if confirmed, do you commit to ensuring DEI and equity efforts are properly staffed, resourced, that there is transparency and accountability around implementing those plans? Yes. Do you commit to continuing diverse recruitment pipelines Congress has supported, including paid internships, the Charles Rangel Thomas Pickering Fellowship Programs, the Colin Power Leadership uh, Foreign Affairs IT, and William D. Clark Diplomatic Security Fellowships? Yes. And do you commit to advancing partnerships nationwide with the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities, historically black colleges, and other institutions that draw diverse talent and innovative approaches to the department from different groups and geographic regions? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, let me turn to Senator Risch for his questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I wonder, uh, understanding you're, you're new to this, are you familiar with the situation we had regarding the waivers of diplomatic immunity? during the COVID situation? I am, I have been briefed on it, Senator, and I, I know uh, your concern about what took place, but I wasn't personally involved, obviously. No, no I, yeah. I get that, I understand that. I, I, do you have some thoughts you could share with us on this? Uh, th this was stunning, uh, you know, when we get sure. well, I mean, our diplomats have uh, certain immunities that they absolutely have to have, and when they get waived, it's a, it, it, makes you sit up and sure. take notice. What, have you got thoughts on this? Sure. I mean, let me, let me also just credit Ambassador Burns for uh, the fact that upon his first day in country, he made it clear uh, to the PRC that U.S. diplomatic personnel would not be, would not be appearing uh, in their fever hospitals or in any of their quarantine situations. And I appreciate what the department did to actually set up medevac for the, for the personnel. As I go back, and, and, I, and I know you're interested in how it happened, but you know, to suggest COVID was unprecedented, it was truly unprecedented. Fair point. And, and China was not the only place, Senator, where we had to comply with local uh, laws in order for our personnel to be there. And as I understand it, the difficult decision that's made is, do you show up for the job in a difficult location or do you not? And I think this is what was presented to us, not only in China, but in dozens of jurisdictions uh, around the world. And, and I know that's not probably a, a, an adequate answer, but those, those are the real-time tough decisions. And I think the calculation, and I'm happy to go back and look at this, was that it was better to be present than not be present. I, that's a realistic answer. And, uh, and certainly uh, it requires uh, a balancing um, answering the question you just pr uh, proposed, and that is, do you comply or do you leave? You know, I mean, those are th that's uh, really what it comes down to. Um, I, I think in the case of what happened in China, uh, the, uh, the the things they were asking were uh, just. I guess I'd have come down the other way on it if uh, if I had to make that decision because to to. Uh, Put one of our diplomats through what uh, some of them went through under those circumstances was uh, 
was more than I would want to expect uh, from our diplomats. Yes, Senator, I, the, the hardship that was experienced by a number of personnel and their families was uh, intolerable, and uh, we want to see that that sort of thing does not happen again. Speaking of the pandemic, uh, my uh, uh, Global Health Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response Act, which uh, was passed uh, with the help and the collaboration of, uh, of the chairman, uh, is something that we have in, we put in place um, to try to answer when this happens again. And I, I, there's, I don't think you can find anybody that would think that this isn't going to happen again. We're, we're going we're gonna to face this kind of a challenge uh, again. Maybe, maybe not as bad, maybe worse, we don't know. But uh, in any event, uh, we were very much unprepared for this. Uh, you, you can argue fault if you want, but again, it was, uh, it was unprecedented and uh, it's understandable that people responded in the way they did in some instances. What we tried to do was put together a response that, uh, that states U.S. policy in this regard and uh, thus, thus the bill. And that, of course, in, includes uh, uh, the department, uh, a new global health bureau to advance uh, uh, these issues. What, have, you, have you had a chance to review that yet, uh, and uh, what are your thoughts on that, if you have? I'll, I haven't had a chance to look at the legislation specifically, but I, I know that the global health uh, is the top, one of the top issues for the department, and the new bureau will be essential working with you and, and your staff on, on these sets of issues, because I concur with you, Senator, we're going to face these kinds of uh, transnational threats again in the future, and we, we have to be ready, and so the new bureau uh, along with the authorities uh, that have come from this committee, I think are going to be critically important. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I think, uh, uh, you know, when, once uh, the, the pandemic is kind of behind us now and we're, we're focused on other things, uh, which we have to be, of course, but in the meantime, I, I think we really need to keep this uh, uh, on our minds because it comes out of nowhere. I mean, it's like, like other tragedies that happen uh, in life. They just show up, and... Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, this legislation that we've passed is going to put us in a better position uh, next time as we go forward. We know how small the globe has become, and uh, these things happen uh, uh, quickly in another place, and all of a sudden, they're right here on our shore. And uh, what, what we have done, what you have done, the department has done, uh, certainly will make a difference in the future. Uh, for, for better or for worse, and hopefully this legislation will get us to where we want to be. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you to your family. Uh, I want to ask you about climate. Um, U.S. diplomatic posts and activities are not immune from severe weather risks, um, flooding, interfering with the safety and accessibility of our facilities, severe storms, droughts, wildfires, and increasing demand for U.S. disaster relief resources. How are you thinking about more frequent and more severe weather events in the context of foreign policy? Yes, Senator, it's an incredibly important issue. We see the impacts of climate change across the world. You see uh, climate uh, migration taking place. You see instability, civil unrest uh, can bring down governments uh, in, in unstable parts of the world. And so this is one of the president's top priorities, and it's one of the department's top priorities. And it's so obviously recognizing the threat, but also then how is the department going to respond to it? And will we actually have 
uh, members of the team trained up to be able to go out and work on climate-related issues. Yeah. And again, appreciate your leadership on this issue. I think we are moving aggressively in that uh, direction. Yeah, I just think it's important to kind of to to break up the kind of lines of effort as it relates to climate. Obviously, we're trying to encourage other countries to take climate action, but it seems to me where the rubber hits the road in terms of our embassies and our presence abroad is actually helping uh, our friends and allies um, to adjust to severe weather, to prepare for it, to respond to it, and to recover from it. And so I'm just, I want to encourage you to flesh out what they're doing at the embassy level and, and, and the consular level, and, and also to make sure that everyone says whole of government, but there are data sets right, from NOAA and the National Weather Service and others, even the Department of Defense, that can inform our foreign policy thinking in a particular country. And, and I want to make sure that it's not just that we, we list as one of our bullets, we hope you, you know, comply with your nationally de declared, you know, climate goals. That's great. That's important. But also, I think to the extent that we're projecting power abroad, we want people to know we're here to help you with this new problem. Right. Senator, I, sh I should mention that for the first time ever, we have a designated uh, a kind of discipline as a climate officer. Uh, the first cohort of climate officers are, are going through the Foreign Service Institute right now. Uh, secondly, the Foreign Service Institute has incorporated the entire set of climate issues into its uh, training. That includes management officers who have to run the large facilities that we have around the world and understand uh, our carbon footprint, what we can do better, how we work with host governments, but also our political officers and our economic officers who are in country doing negotiations, interacting with their colleagues on this set of issues. Thank you. Um, in April of last year, Secretary Blinken established the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy, which includes a unit on digital freedom. Um, how are you going to ensure that CDP thrives, given the importance of cyberspace and, and, and digital policy and human rights issues? Again, it's sort of a, a, it's a, it's a, it's the same question as I asked on climate. I understand we're going to prioritize digital freedom. How are we going to do that? Well, it's, this new bureau is actually very cutting edge and uh, going to be super important because how we use technology and talk about technology around the world requires U.S. leadership. But your point about internet freedom and digital freedom is even more important because as there's more people around the world, over five billion on the internet, um, it is both a tool for development and liberation and information and it can also be a tool for oppression and censorship and misinformation. And so we Part of our Democracy Bureau, part of the new Bureau, part of a new uh, senior official resp responsible for digital freedom and Internet freedom, working with all of them will continue to be even more important. Uh, and we, we see this play out in front of us in real time all over the world. Ambassador, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll leave you with a question uh, for the record. You mentioned um, increasing our diplomatic presence everywhere, but, but in particular the, there were some pretty encouraging announcements in the in the Pacific. Um, I'm a little worried, having met with Pacific Island leaders multiple times. Um, first of all, I think this is a good step. It's better than what we were doing, which was essentially ignoring them and taking them for granted and looking at our relationship that, with them as sort of a, a place to park our, our, um, our military assets. So I think we made a bunch of progress. What worries me the most is this sense that they have 
that now we've made an announcement, we've checked the box called, we're doing the Pacific now, and we will move on from that and go back to whatever it is that we always worry about institutionally. So I would just like for you to do some thinking and get back to the committee on what's the next tranche of executive actions that can be taken in the Asia Pacific region to strengthen our relationships with our friends, allies, and partners. Thank you. Definitely do that, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ambassador Verma, for your service to our country and for your interest in continuing to serve our great nation. And I also want to thank your family because I know they serve and sacrifice alongside you when you do that. So you're going to be the Deputy, of, Deputy Secretary of Management and Resources, and some of your responsibilities will include overseeing the department's personnel, facilities, managing foreign contracts, grants, foreign aid, and the acquisition and upkeep of technology. Roughly, do you have an idea of how many people you would be responsible for? Well, uh, it's a great question. The department has well over 70,000 people, if you include locally employed staff and contractors. Uh, so it's a, it's a big, big group of folks. But we also have um, a, a pretty uh, extensive and highly qualified team. So thankfully, I'm not the only person responsible for that. Right. So... Uh, Talk to me a little bit about some of your past experience in managing large, large teams like that, and also maybe touch upon some of your past experience with uh, some of the things we talked about, like with grants, facilities, technology, that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, obviously, I've never managed 77,000 people before, but again, that's why we have uh, the secretary, the head of management. In India, we probably had a team of 4,100 people, um, which was a large, complicated organization. We had every agency of the U.S. government. We had four consulates. We had a budget of a half a billion dollars. Um, so, I, Senator, I can't say that that's exactly what, what this job will entail, but it, it gave me a flavor for how the department operates and how we can have impact, and I think we, we did a pretty decent job of it. With regard to grants and the administration of grants, I also worked at the National Democratic Institute as a grantee. I was a field representative in Eastern Europe. I've sat on the board of NDI. I'm on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm on the board of the Ford Foundation. I have a pretty good feel for the grant process and how to have an impact um, and what I think we owe to the American people when we put money out the door. All right, very good. Talk to me a little bit about what, when um, Secretary Blinken's talking about his modernization agenda, what, do you, what does that say to you? What are you thinking about when you hear that? Yeah, so I hear first and foremost that we have to have the capability set for the challenges of today. So new cyber bureau, new health bureau, uh, ready on, on climate change, for example. Uh, secondly, have a agile, uh, hybrid, mission-focused workforce. Uh, third, having the kinds of technology that's required to, to meet the challenges of today and the proper cybersecurity protocols, um, having a, a diverse uh, and inclusive workforce, uh, having the proper resources to do the mission. Those are some of the things that I think about when it comes to modernization. Are, have you had any experience working with any sort of process improvement methodologies? And the reason I ask this question is, as governor, one of the things I brought to the state of Nebraska was Lean Six Sigma. And that's one of the methodologies, but there's a number of them out there, that really works with your frontline people and teams to be able to 
figure out how we can do a better job providing services and also let you keep control of your costs as well. Do you have any experience with any of those kind of methodologies? I know you were in the private sector at MasterCard, but did your yeah. job involve that at all? I don't, I don't know if it's credible to, to say I have an industrial engineering degree as well um, from about 35, uh, 40 years ago. But no, I think, look, this is why we have teams of experts to go out and make sure that when we procure services, we're doing them with the, having the greatest impact and the greatest efficiency, that we use data uh, to make decision making. And again, Senator, I wouldn't presume to, to know what our teams of people know. It's, a, it's even more complicated for the department because we're in places that are not often permissive, that don't often want us there. And so the security situation becomes quite difficult. So there's a lot of factors that go in to State Department procurement that are incredibly complicated. I'd also say it's been a department that's, that was under-resourced for far too long. Now that has started to change, but I, I think we're in a far better place than where we were. But I, I take the thrust of your question, which is make sure you're doing it right when you're spending the money. Yeah, absolutely. It's about leveraging better technology and better processes, reducing the number of steps, for example, to take the do the kind of average things that you do on an operational basis. The state of Nebraska, we created a center of operational excellence to train all of our teammates on how to do that. And it's one of the things that I, I didn't see in Secretary Blinken's talking about the modernization agenda is about being able to be effective and efficient in controlling costs. So I'd ask you to really think about that as you're, uh, you know, presuming you get confirmed here about how you can help drive that, especially with your background, to be able to make sure that the dollars that we're responsible for are being employed in the most effective and efficient way. Thank you. That's a great point. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you for your focus on driving a state authorization bill every year. I think you and the ranking member, the members of this committee, um, have a real opportunity here. Uh, and in particular, in close consultation with Ambassador Verma, um, should he be confirmed, and I look forward to supporting uh, your nomination, to focus on some of the operational issues uh, that Senator Ricketts was just raising, issues around workforce, recruitment, retention, diversity, um, whether or not the embassies we have around the world are striking the right balance between security and engagement, uh, whether or not we're um, finding the right people for the right roles, and whether given some of the very demanding environments in which our diplomats operate, um, whether or not we're um, making it an a attractive work environment and a successful and productive career environment. So um, if I could, from the modernization initiative, uh, Mr. Ambassador, Modernizing training and professional development and shifting the State Department's culture toward decisive leadership and agility. Um, I, as a county executive, um, had responsibility over the arc of 10 years in county government for a workforce that um, was very bureaucratic, uh, very heavily um, controlled by a, a series of civil service protections. Hiring was very difficult. Knowledge transfer was difficult. There wasn't a lot of, I would say, decisive agility. Um, and the training and professional development uh, and the ability to deliver customer services well was something I also focused a lot on. Um, we did end up with some green belts um, from Six Sigma training in partnership with DuPont. I think I succeeded mostly in confusing the county employees who I um, encouraged to participate in this. I came out of a manufacturing background. There are disciplines and there are um, experts in how to motivate and engage and mobilize and sustain global workforces from diverse backgrounds. I'd be interested in where you think we might make the greatest contributions 
to sustaining a high quality and effective workforce, but making progress in these two areas, in training and professional development, and in shifting culture towards leadership and agility. Both of these interest me a great deal. Senator, on the, on the second one, on shifting the culture uh, on more kind of decisive leadership and leading in the face of risk and not being risk averse, I, again, I will tell you from my experience in, in New Delhi, I, I saw a very engaged and active State Department that wanted to be everywhere. In fact, we went to every Indian state the first time a, a mission had done that. We landed on three aircraft carriers. We flew over the Himalayas. We were on the, on the border, uh, contested border with, with China. Now, th that was what the department wanted to do, and I think that is the culture of, of the department. They don't want to be behind big walls. They don't want to be away from city centers. And over, over time, you know, the pendulum swung back to kind of the kind of risk aversion as opposed to leading in, in the face of risk. And I think um, the department's heart and gut is really about being out and being engaged. So I'm actually quite confident on that. If we do it right and, again, taking the safety and security of our, our families and the workforce top of mind, there is a way to do this, and I think it fits well uh, with the culture. On the training and professional development, I think good progress has been made, actually. There's now, for the first time ever, 1,100 members of the Foreign Service in a training float uh, for four to six months where they will actually get professional training. We have new mid-level training uh, for folks. And this is actually important not only to give people the skills, it also is a retention factor as well. So couldn't agree with you more. There's a lot we can do in this area. Um, I continue to believe this is the best diplomatic corps in the world, uh, but they want and deserve these, these kind of up-to-date training modules, which I think we can, we can deliver. Well, thank you. As the, the chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee that, that funds the State Department, I look forward to working more closely with you. I think there's been a lot of discussion about risk tolerance um, in some of the more challenging posts, in Chad, um, in Mali, in other countries I visited in recent years, um, we had built, in some cases around the continent of Africa, new uh, fortresses well removed from the downtown, uh, better protected against potential attack. Uh, but I met with career professionals who were deeply frustrated at the inability to go out and engage and have an impact. And we face a strategic competitor in China uh, that is flooding the zone um, with um, agile and engaged diplomats and development professionals. And we need to meet that challenge in a way that strikes the right risk tolerance. I think the department may have overlearned some lessons um, from recent years, and I think we, we have a role to play in providing resources, um, staffing, and direction on how to strike that risk tolerance balance. Senator, I agree with you, and I do think it is changing. I understand last year alone, 95% of all requests made to diplomatic security to, to move around were approved. So that's, that's a good indicator. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador Verma, welcome. It's good to see Thank you again. You. Good to see you. Um, if confirmed, Ambassador Verma, like so many other members of this committee, I'm looking forward to working with you on the modernization of the State Department. Uh, but before we get into that topic, I just want to make certain that we're on the same page on an issue that I discussed with uh, the former holder of this office back in October of, 19, of 2021. Um, and, and that issue is, 
a controversial plan by the Biden administration to reopen a U.S. consulate for the Palestinians in Jerusalem. And I'd like to um, say this, that, that such a move is strongly opposed by the Israeli government. Uh, it would basically establish a second competing U.S. mission in the uh, capital city, uh, Israel's eternal capital city. Uh, so I'd like to go back to the question that I uh, asked then Dep Deputy Secretary of State Brian McEwen and, and repeat what I asked him. Is it your understanding that under U.S. and international law, the government of Israel would have to provide its affirmative consent before the United States could reopen the U.S. consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem? Or does the Biden administration believe it can move forward to establish a second U.S. mission in the Israel, cap in, in the Israel capital city of Jerusalem without the consent of the government of Israel? At the time, Deputy Secretary McEwen answered, and I quote, yes, that is my understanding that we need the consent of the host government to open a diplomatic facility. That's the end of the quote. Ambassador Verma, I just simply want to ask you whether you agree with then Deputy Secretary McEwen's answer. That's my understanding as well, Senator. Okay, good. I just wanted to make certain that we had that uh, understanding. Uh, to, in, to make certain that the Biden administration doesn't subvert the law, I'm going to plan to reintroduce my upholding the 1995 J Jerusalem Embassy Law Act this Congress and ensure that there is only one U.S. mission, a U.S. embassy to Israel, that is resident in Israel's eternal and indivisible capital. Um, to turn to uh, State Department modernization, Ambassador, uh, Senator Cardin and I work very hard on this committee to include the Commission on Reform and Modernization of the Department of State in last year's state reauthorization law. And I want to thank uh, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch for their support. The Commission is authorized to conduct a comprehensive review and offer legislative proposals to modernize the State Department. For the Commission to be successful, it's going to require close cooperation from the State Department. And I appreciate your and Secretary Tony Blinken's commitment to prioritizing modernization of American diplomacy in your opening statement. Now, Ambassador Verma, I just want to make certain that you support the objectives of this Commission and to get your commitment to working with the Commission in all the matters that are related to the law that created it. Yeah, absolutely, Excellent. Senator, and we'll work closely with the Commission. Look forward to that. Certainly. One other related question to that. If you're confirmed, will you support the inclusion of the Commission in the President's FY 2024 budget? So I, I would presume, yes, in order for the Commission to do its work, I assume it needs to be funded, but I will also say I'm not close enough to what was actually in the budget this year in terms of what was requested. I, I understand. I think your presumption, though, is a very logical one. It absolutely needs to be included if it's going to, to be operative, and I think uh, that shows me your instincts are like mine. Um, you, you want to see something get done and have the resources to, to do it. I, I would say that I, Senator Cardin, I believe, joins me in this. We're very enthusiastic about the potential here. We look forward to working with a great team of people like you. I believe that uh, our State Department and our, um, our diplomats are the best in the world, and we want to see them properly resourced and uh, as agile, as, as Senator Kuhn said, and effective as they possibly can be. So I'm looking forward to working with you and spending a lot more time uh, in the details uh, on this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate it, Senator. Thank you, sir. Senator Duck um, Senator Duckworth. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I know you and the chairman um, have talked about the importance of resourcing our missions in the Indo-Pacific, and I think that was a very important conversation. I just want to emphasize the importance of that, particularly with regards to the ASEAN mission itself. 
I hope your commitment there also extends to Southeast Asia. Um, I believe strongly in the importance of uh, the role that ASEAN plays in regional stability and believe we should be strengthening our partnerships with ASEAN. That's why I'm going to be traveling to Jakarta um, uh, this coming week. And, uh, you know, it's also why um, I, when I'm there, I'm going to be specifically visiting the mission, the ASEAN mission itself, um, and to also meet with ASEAN member country leadership. I'll be discussing supply chain trans transparency, um, economic cooperation, trade facilitation, labor practices, and defense and maritime security. I look forward to bringing these discussions back to inform my uh, uh, work on this issue. Um, so I just want to emphasize the importance of ASEAN. Senator, I couldn't agree more with you, and I think it's an uh, incredibly important part of the world, getting even more important. ASEAN and our ASEAN friends and partners uh, are, uh, again, are critically important. And I look forward to hearing about your trip and, and some of the learnings when you come back. Thank you. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and it's unfortunate that Senator Haggerty has left because I was going to um, give him some kudos. Uh, one issue that has come up repeatedly in my discussion um, uh, uh, with our various missions around the world is the problem of, of accessibility at overseas missions and residences. While the State Department has made considerable efforts to incorporate accessibility features into new design and construction, it has devoted far fewer resources to upgrading existing facilities. I remember on a trip uh, uh, to Japan when Ambassador Haggerty was the, um, when my colleague was the ambassador to Japan, um, and one of the staff members there, when I said, there are no accessible bathrooms that I can get to, um, my, the response was, oh, we're in Japan. This is, this is not the ADA, it doesn't apply to Japan. And I said, this is American soil. This is the US Embassy. And under uh, then Ambassador Haggerty's um, leadership, they actually went through and fixed everything. So uh, it was quite wonderful. But I just found out again, since his tenure there, um, the bathroom in the ambassador's residence is still not accessible. They put grab bars and all the stuff in there, but the door is still not with an ADA. It's not in compliance with the ADA. The lack of accessibility at so many of our facilities is a serious obstacle to the full participation of people with disabilities who want to serve their nation and advance US policy overseas. It also makes it extremely difficult for non-disabled individuals with family members who are disabled to be able to serve our government overseas. Because it is difficult to find accessible facilities and homes abroad, our nation's diplomats often have to make very tough choices. And we must make sure that the best, most qualified people are posted to each of our missions. But they can't do that. And they can't go to the countries where, where we need them to uh, if such barriers are getting in their way. If confirmed, what steps will you take to make sure that our overseas missions and residences are fully accessible in compliance with the ADA? It's been 32 years since ADA passed to all U.S. governmental employees and their families. And will you commit to working with me to make concrete progress towards achieving full accessibility? Yeah, Senator, absolutely, 100%. And I, it's an incredibly important issue. As you probably know, our facilities are not uh, as up-to-date as they should be. And this is a, from a variety of perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure that uh, our people are not limited in any way by the facilities and where they serve. So I look forward to working with you closely on it. And I will say even more than that, I think accessibility, as, as you've pointed out uh, many times, is only part of the uh, answer. There is also making sure that we are 
promoting and retaining and recognizing and advancing uh, people with disabilities throughout the State Department. I look forward to working with you on that as well. Thank you. I would also like to ask you about accessibility and the prioritization of disability rights within the State Department here at home. Um, as you know, it's one of the things to be in complete com to be in compliance with the law, but it's another to encourage and cultivate a culture that welcomes values and empowers people with disabilities. Uh, what actions will you take if confirmed to foster such a culture at the State Department here at home? Yeah, again, I'll just uh, restate this is important to me um, personally, and I will make sure that this is a priority on my team. And I already know it's a priority for Secretary Blinken. I've, I've seen the uh, DEIA strategic plan. I've seen the detailed benchmarks that they're putting in place, some 200 uh, measurable performance uh, measurements on this scale. So accessibility, but again, the whole suite of, of kind of issues that go with it uh, are gonna be very, very important if confirmed. Thank you. I yield back, Chairman. Thank you, Senator Duckworth. I'll tell you, I met uh, with a U.S. ambassador yesterday who raised this exact issue about making reasonable investments to ensure that there is accessibility in our facilities. Senator Shaheen. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, ambassador Verma. And um, thank you for your willingness to continue to serve this country. And I would actually like to begin with an issue that we discussed when we met last week. Uh, I know it's not directly within your portfolio, but as the former ambassador to India, can you talk about why this Senate needs to act to confirm an ambassador to the country of India, the largest democracy in the world? Well, just say, Senator, I continue to believe this is the defining partnership for, for this century. The relationship is so uh, consequential in so many ways. And having a senior official on the ground that represents the, the president uh, makes a big difference. And so I, I think everyone hopefully appreciates the urgency with the need to, to put someone there as soon as possible. It's also, I would say, a morale issue for the team, um, but more importantly, just delivering uh, on the president's priorities. Thank you. Um, well, hopefully we will see some action soon. Another area where, sadly, the Senate has been um, lacking in its responsibility is in confirming an ambassador to head the Office of Global Women's Issues. That office has been without an ambassador for five of the last six years. Um, without that ambassador, it's, um, the office is inhibited in its ability to ensure that a gender lens policy um, is done throughout our Department of State and in terms of our foreign policy. And, and I wonder if you could comment first on why having that gender lens on our foreign policy is important. And secondly, how you would see working with Secretary Blinken and a future ambassador of global women's issues to engage in having that gender lens on all aspects of our foreign policy. Yeah, Senator, it's, it's so important. And from the president early on, um, through his leadership and the secretary, has made uh, gender equality and, and fighting gender discrimination uh, around the world a foreign policy priority. And when women and girls can't reach their full potential, um, those countries are not as successful, they're not as impactful, they're generally not as democratic. 
And so it is a key component of our, of our foreign policy. The position that, that you mentioned, the Global Coordinator for Women's Issues, is so essential to make sure that we continue to have it at the forefront. I know it's, it's a super pro high priority for the Secretary. It will be for me. It was when I was in India and we were carrying out the uh, agenda uh, there. Uh, and so this has been uh, a high commitment for me and it will continue to be. Well, thank you very much, and hopefully we can see some movement on that appointment as well. Um, we've had a law around women, peace, and security since 2017, recognizing that um, having women at the table as we're looking at conflict areas and looking at how we address um, peace and stability throughout the world, it's very important to have women as part of that. You, I understand that a number of your um, questions have been around diversity and equity and inclusion at the State Department. How do you see the Women, Peace, and Security Initiative being integrated into those efforts to address diversity and equity? It, it's absolutely essential, uh, and it goes along with, the again, the national strategy on, on gender equality. It goes along with our own uh, department strategy on women and girls, as I, as I said. But again, having um, women at the table on the key issues of the day in senior leadership positions, I think the Secretary has demonstrated that with his appointments, frankly, within the department. Uh, and that'll, that'll continue. But we also have work to do to make sure in the senior and mid-level uh, components of the department that there is greater parity, gender parity, and again, still a journey. We are not where we need to be, and we have to do a better job. I, I just want to thank you for everything you've done to call out this issue. Uh, and all I can say is I, I look forward to working with you as we, as we uh, give the department even more of a focus on this. Well, thank you very much. I'm almost out of time, but I, I just want to raise another issue that we discussed when we met, and that is around the Afghan SIV um, process. Since the U.S. left Afghanistan in August of 2021, there have been two to 300 um, reports of credible Taliban murder, murdering Afghans who worked with the United States government and our allies in Afghanistan. Um, this comes when, according to states reporting, only 2,646 SIV applications were issued in fiscal year 2022. And that compares to 3,626 visas in 2016 and 4,120 in 2017. We are not doing what we need to do in this area. Um, you, we talked about that when we met. I know you understand that, but we've got to do better. It's just not acceptable that we are doing worse now in terms of those SIV applications, given all of the attention that's happened on um, Afghanistan in the last few years. So I would just say to you, I, I hope you will take that as a directive from Congress to address that. I absolutely will, Senator. I know how important this is, and I know how many people are now charged with making sure we are living up to that commitment to our Afghan partners and friends, and there's a lot of resources being put at this. There's a new unit in Doha, as you know. There are thousands of people in the process. I know it's difficult. There's also a security element to this that we can't uh, 
underlook as well, but I, I take your directive quite seriously. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Senator Van Hollen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ambassador Verma. It's great, great to see you. Uh, great to have a fellow Marylander, at least now here. Uh, thanks for your service on the Hill and your previous service um, as Ambassador to India, among other posts. Uh, and I do want to second what uh, Senator Shaheen and maybe others have said about the importance of us confirming an ambassador um, right away uh, to represent the United States uh, in New Delhi, as you did uh, so ably. Um, I want to raise a couple uh, issues uh, with you um, in my time. One has to do with the passage of the Foreign Service Families Act. Uh, so I co-chair, along with Senator Sullivan, the, the bipartisan Foreign Service Caucus, and we're very focused on trying to make sure um, we have strong morale um, in the Foreign Service and the State Department overall. Uh, we passed uh, something called the Foreign Service Families Act as part of the last State Department authorization bill that was included in the NDAA, uh, and look forward to working with you and your team to implement it. Um, my, my staff has uh, asked for a, a report on the implementation, um, and so I just look forward to working with your team on that process. The idea is to extend some of the same benefits uh, to foreign service families that military families enjoy. Um, that's one aspect of it. So I just look for your commitment to make sure that we fully implement that act. 100%, absolutely. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me turn now to consular services. Look, we went through a COVID pandemic. Um, understand that there were delays on both issuing U.S. citizens' passports and also uh, issuing um, foreigners, including a lot of family members with loved ones who are U.S. citizens. Um, understand the delays. But the delays have been continuing. And this is, this is no hit on the people who are working every day very hard to try to process the passports and non-immigrant and immigrant visas. They're just under-resourced. And it, it really ends up, I think, hurting the United States um, when you know, people are able to uh, travel to other countries. Uh, they want to come to the United States, uh, but they're able to come to other countries but just can't get a non-immigrant visa. And then, of course, there are people who would like to come, for example, from India uh, to uh, see their relatives in, in Maryland. Um, for a wedding or for a funeral. Do you have any idea what the current wait time is for a non-immigrant visa in New Delhi? It's, it's too long, Senator. It's 612 days. Right. right? So, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how many people plan weddings to, you know, two weeks ahead. Certainly people don't plan their funerals. It, it, is, it is just really, it is really hurting us. Um, in my view, it's certainly hurting constituents uh, here um, in Maryland and around the country. And on U.S. passports, um, it's, the delay is now 12 to 18 weeks still. I mean, that is, it's unacceptably long. And again, the people doing this work, um, they're doing it well. They just need to be better resourced. So do I have your commitment to work on this issue? Yes, but maybe I could just add a, a yeah. couple observations here, because I've stood in the visa line myself, you know, out in our consulates. I know how important this is uh, to folks. I will say our biggest challenge is not in every category. It's in the tourist visa, the first-time applicants uh, for tourist visas. And it is not globally. It is in a few select uh, countries. And in fact, um, 
we've exceeded our weight at times and, and made good progress in the other categories. But you're right, in these high population countries with the surge in travel, India, Mexico, and some others, we have to get those numbers down. I think there, there is a plan to get those numbers down. I will also say on passport services, as I understand it, we're back to kind of the standard routine processing time of six to nine weeks. Uh, well, I, I know you're working to that. I have 12 to 18. Let's okay. compare notes afterwards. Right. But um, it has improved, obviously, since the pandemic period. But I, I do think we have a long way to go. Um, I do want to follow up with you after this on uh, two things. One are security clearances, where there have been significant improvements. I yeah. think 90% of State Department security clearances now come in below the, the government standard. There's still 10% that are agonizingly long and, again, hurt the State Department's ability to do its work, uh, mostly in other federal agencies. So I want to work with you on that. Great. Visa waiver program. Uh, the visa waiver program obviously provides uh, great convenience um, and is also designed to provide security with that convenience. Um, it's a good program where it works. But as you know, I think the, a key part of the visa waiver program includes reciprocity, equal treatment of American citizens of all faiths and backgrounds traveling overseas, right? You know, right? Absolutely. Um, we don't have any measure of that right now in our current visa waiver program. We have no uh, way to measure whether or not um, Americans of one faith or another, one ethnicity or another, are being treated differently than other Americans when they're traveling abroad under the visa waiver program. Will you work with me to make sure that we have a standard to measure that? Absolutely. I look forward to that, because blue is blue. Um, and we want to make sure all Americans are treated uh, equally when they're traveling under the visa waiver program anywhere. We want that, but the visa waiver program is something we set up. It's within our control. So I look forward to working with you on that. It's a great point. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen and Ambassador Verma. Great to see you again. Sir. Uh, there is a vote ongoing. I'll ask questions, and then I don't believe Senator Risch has any follow up. So we'll likely then conclude unless another member comes in. Um, I want to ask you about Havana syndrome. We had a hearing in May uh, around State Department reauthorization, and the then Deputy Secretary Brian McKeon testified a bit about this. He reported that the DNI commissioned reporting showed a number of cases and that they were explained by our environmental and health factors, but many still didn't have an explanation. Um, and uh, the U.S. government was still unable to attribute incidents to a particular actor. If confirmed, do you commit to ensuring that the department fully supports the provision of all appropriate health care and reasonable accommodations to State Department employees for, who are suffering from Havana syndrome symptoms incurred while serving the country. Absolutely, yes, sir. Great, you. Thank, thank you, Ambassador Verma. Um, I want to ask you a question about the workforce. A, a sizable percentage of the State Department workforce live in Virginia. They're constituents of mine. Um, the GA, I'm sorry, the OPM does an annual employment survey. It's the FEVS, Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, and for many, many years. The State Department of the 17 large agencies that tend to be surveyed again and again rank near the top in terms of job satisfaction. But in recent years, um, and the most recent FEVS we have is from 2021, uh, the, it, the job satisfaction um, in the department has dramatically declined. Um, what would you do in your role if confirmed to try to really work on these internal morale issues and return to the State Department to? the place that it's traditionally been. Yeah, it's, it's really important, Senator. I think trying to get at the root, like what is driving that 
attitude, what's happening that people feel that way. And there's been a number of surveys. There's been some early feedback, and the Secretary, I think, has, has set out really in a focused way. I mean, the modernization agenda is really about taking care of the workforce and making sure they have what they need. So do they also have our benefits competitive? Do we have the right childcare subsidy? Do we have the right um, kind of agility in our workforce uh, compared to other federal agencies? These are all things that, that we're looking at. I still think the mission of the department attracts the best people from around the country. But we got to make sure we're actually living up to uh, our commitment to them to make sure they're getting the best of what they, what they need. I really, again, my experience overseas helped me see what people need and how they live and how it, how it works in practice day to day. And I think we do an exceptionally good job of taking care of people around the world. But we've got to do better. We want to be at the top part of that survey and not uh, lagging just, behind. Just to share an insight with you, when I, when I travel abroad, I usually try to have a meeting with first or second to our FSO um, State Department folks at embassies without the ambassador there, right. without any supervisor there. And I ask them this question. You, you obtained a very difficult job to get. I mean, to, to get to be a Foreign Service officer, incredibly difficult to get there. What will be the determinant about whether you make this a career or make this a shorter term you know, job? And I hardly have to say another word, and then I just listen for about 90 minutes. <laughs> and I, I will say a lot of the discussion tends to revolve around we're not giving enough, uh, we're not giving enough latitude to make decisions. You know, somebody once said to me, I had to pass a security vetting that was super intense, but if I want to requisition five pencils, they treat me like I'm going to steal one of them, and I've got to account for, you know, all five and what I'm going to do with them. So I, you've, you've been there. You've, you've been an ambassador, but you've also worked your way up. You've, you understand the sacrifices and the frustrations. I think you'd be uniquely situated to deal with this, but I would just encourage you to. And kind of additionally, this, the surveys tend to show that you're doing the State Department's efforts around recruiting are okay, but maybe you're falling short on the retention side. Right. So I would, I would urge you to focus on that. Last thing I know, um, as far as I know, Congress has not yet been provided the 2022 FEVS results. Do you have any idea about when we might see those? I, I don't, but I'll definitely find out and come back to you if as you quickly could, as possible. That would be great. Senator, your, your point on retention is really important, and there is a retention working group that's focused on this, coming out with a number of recommendations and already taken some steps, but training's a big part of it, um, making sure people have a pathway to promotion. Um, there's a lot that will go into retention, but it's not just recruiting uh, great people, it's making sure they stay. I think you're uniquely qualified to, to help us get better at this. Thank so you. thank Appreciate you. And I, Mr. Chair, I'm going to go vote. Okay. Well, Ambassador, uh, for a position of this consequence, this type of hearing is unremarkable. So uh, <laughs> that is uh, a good thing, testament to you. Uh, this uh, record uh, will remain open. Let me see until when. Close of business. We remain open to the close of business tomorrow. There may be questions for the record. I'd urge you to answer them expeditiously and as fully as you can. 
so that we can consider your nomination at a business markup. With the thanks of the committee uh, for your appearance here today, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you. you voted.